I'm Chris Motes, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we cultivate those virtues and explore those principles that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. Well, back for another episode, folks. Thanks for joining us once more. We are broadcasting from South Dakota, where under God, the people rule. And as promised, uh, we've got another great religious freedom episode lined up for you. My guest today is David Trimble. David is the vice president for public policy and director of the Center for Religious Freedom Education at the Religious Freedom Institute. David, welcome to the program. Thanks, Chris. It's uh, my privilege to be here. I really appreciated working uh, with you personally and with other South Dakota constituents. So it's just my honor to share this time with you today. Well, I'm glad I, I am glad you're here. And um, just to give the listeners a heads up where we're going, I know I've mentioned in past episodes that you and I are going to be talking about Fulton today, but another really important issue in the religious freedom context, there are some really important elements that have not been discussed a whole lot in this infrastructure bill. So we're going to talk about those two things. But, um, you know, religious freedom is something that we talk about a lot on this program. It's really important and grateful for the work that that you and your organization do. Do you mind just before we get started, David, telling telling us a little bit about who you are and what the Religious Freedom Institute is? Sure, sure. Chris, very succinctly, we're an organization uh, about 10 years old, uh, really focused initially on uh, research, a few years spending research uh, from the academic perspective of developing principled arguments of why religious freedom, as the founders understood it, um, both supports other basic freedoms and supports a host of societal goods. Mm. And uh, we're firmly convinced that religious freedom, both uh, internationally and domestically, is uh, uh, contributes to the flourishing of individuals and society very, very broadly. It's intended for all people everywhere. Well, that, that's beautiful and it's so, so necessary. I, you know, I, I like to start with the program with, you know, from South Dakota, we're under God, the people rule, which is our state motto. Here in South Dakota, we passed this really great um, religious freedom protection bill this last session sponsored by Senator Lee Schoenbeck, Representative John Hansen, only three votes against it. You know, 105 legislators, only three votes against it. So it's this value that's still really like part of our fabric here in South Dakota. But for anybody that reads the news, you know, elsewhere in the country, elsewhere in the world, we really know that organizations like like yours and work you do is just so, so important. So thank you, David, for the work you do. Well, uh, thank you. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, religious freedom is really a nonpartisan issue. Yeah. And uh, it, it's not an issue to be uh, waved by the Republican flag or the Democratic flag. It's a nonpartisan issue that benefits every single individual, uh, whether they're religious or whether they're not. Yeah, it's so, so true. And it's, um, you, you know, as we as we seek to just sort of carry the flag, so to speak, with with this important issue and just share with our fellow citizens what it means for us. You know, a lot of uh, Catholics listening to this program, other non-Catholic Christians, maybe we've got some atheist agnostics out there. This is an American value. And I think as we as we look at the American landscape, one of the things we want to talk about today, David, is this this big recent case, Fulton v. Philadelphia, that listeners will be a little bit familiar uh, with. I, I dis- I've discussed in the past this case just in the context of like um the jurisprudence more broadly kind of the history that brought us up to this case 
but would really like to just um, maybe for the next 10 or 15 minutes, go into some of the details. Do you mind just briefly, um, what are the facts of the case? Like what gave rise to this? Yeah, so, so very succinctly, uh, Catholic Social Services in the city of Philadelphia had conducted their foster care business for over 50 years, uninterrupted, uh, you know, meeting the needs of Philadelphia's children, helping to create stable families and opportunities for these children. And uh, it, it was through actually a, a news agency, a news reporting that the city then uh, began to think that perhaps there was discrimination going on. Uh, that uh, the Catholic Social Services was discriminating against same-sex couples by not providing foster care services to them, as well as to uh, non-married individuals or uh, other family structures. And um, so uh, it was a city that, uh, uh, that, that brought this claim against uh, the uh, Catholic Social Services and uh, Catholic Social Services simply responded uh, by the fact that, uh, one, this is a traditional service that the Catholic Church has performed for over 200 years. We've done it 50 years in the city of Philadelphia. Uh, it has always been our stance that we uh, support the sacred bond of marriage between man and woman. And so we don't certify, we don't certify families of couples that are uh, not married, whether they are male and female, and neither would we certify same-sex couples. So this is what the issue hinged on, uh, in some ways, very narrowly, this definition of marriage. Well, and it's, um, it's certainly been a flashpoint, just like the definition of marriage, especially since uh, Obergefell versus Hodges, which has seemed to, to really almost be like ammunition to be used against people who hold an alternate view, um, by largely but not exclusively people of faith, uh, be it Christian faith or otherwise. So um, not, not surprising in many ways that this became the... Um, the nexus for this, you know, this flashpoint. What what did the what did the court ultimately decide as they were adjudicating this? Well, uh, you know, ultimately, uh, the court held that the refusal of Philadelphia to contract with a child social services for the provision of foster care services unless child social services uh, would certify same sex same sex same sex couples. Uh, as foster parents violated the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. It was a violation of their First Amendment religious freedom. And so from that standpoint, it was a remarkable win for the faith community. And uh, there have been, you know, there have been currents and there have been those that, you know, in the, in the uh, aftermath of a Supreme Court case that have looked at this case and, and bemoaned the fact that the court didn't rule further in terms of addressing other, uh, other uh, sensitive issues with religious freedom as it relates to other areas of law. Um, but in, in many respects, this was a huge win for uh, not just for child uh, uh, Catholic social services in Philadelphia, uh, for many reasons that we can go into. Uh, but I think it was a huge win. I mean, not often 
I think you'd be hard pressed, in fact, to find many times that the Supreme Court has taken up a religious freedom case and ruled nine to zero. Yeah, so that, that's like, let's put an exclamation point on that. That was a nine zero decision, which this day and age, I, at least the big cases that, that make headlines across the nation, you don't see nine zero, do you? Well, you don't, don't really. I mean, if you, if you look back historically, um, you know, you can find that the Supreme Court overall has ruled maybe in the 30 percent, a little above that 30 percentile range on, on, on cases. But if you were to, to narrow that to religious freedom cases, you know, then we begin to see the magnitude of this decision. And uh, because rarely would you see a 9-0 decision. So in many ways, I think the court was forecasting that we're taking this issue seriously. We We take the orthodox tenets of faith, of faith communities, seriously and i want to talk about that a little bit more but in any in many ways then maybe they were laying the groundwork to to uh, on some other cases that are upcoming in string court and maybe you know giving an indication that they are, are ready to grapple with some serious issues um but all in all i think the decision was a was a shot across the bow let's say at uh more progressive ideologies that are entrenched in our society, that are uh, growing in their uh, in their presence in law, to say, you know, we're taking a serious look at religious freedom issues, and so I see a lot of good coming from this decision, Chris. So what's 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 next? If you know, obviously you can't read the future, but what what do you think is next in terms of religious freedom jurisprudence for the court, or maybe what you, what you hope is next? Yeah. So, um, so I want to, I want to, I want to go there. Um, but I, but I want to, I want to say first, sure. and, uh, well, maybe we can come back to this after answering that question, Chris, I, w- I want to comment on, again, looking at a couple of, uh, of ideas that were basic to the court's ruling. Yeah, that show deference to the church. So let's hold that. But sure, what I do, what I do think is is coming next is the court is looking for the right time to address what is commonly referred to, you know, as the Smith decision. Yeah, and uh, you know, the Smith decision has left uh, many, many, many uh, religious freedom advocates and, and lawyers a little bit uncomfortable for years. And in Employment Division versus Smith, which is a 1990 case, I mean, the the basic outcome of that is that laws affecting certain religious practices do not violate the right to free exercise of religion as long as the laws are neutral, generally applicable, and are not motivated by animus to religion. And so the problem with that coming out of Smith is that Smith did not apply strict scrutiny. Yeah. The, the highest standard of judicial review, the highest standard of burden of proof falls on the state in, uh, in, uh, in strict scrutiny. And in this case, we were able to go there uh, because of an exception in the contract. 
the court went there because there was an exception mechanism within the contract with the city of Philadelphia that didn't drive the court to overrule Smith. So when you ask, maybe where is this going? You know, there are many that would say that the court was poised at the bottom of the hill to charge the hill and take on Smith in this case. Yep. I want to say, and I, and I mean this in somewhat of a sense of commendation, that the court showed judicial restraint. Yeah. And I believe there's merit in that, that we, even though I would have applauded the outcome sure. had the court taken on Smith. Of course. And I think they need to take on Smith and return to that higher strict level of strict scrutiny. Um, I think they exercise judicial restraint. We don't want the court to go further than the facts and the law. Uh, I think the context would require. So I think they show judicial restraint here. And uh, if I might just try and summarize your comments to see if I understand, so maybe to help the listeners too, and tell me if I get this right. So the, the, the court's holding turned on the fact that there was an exception to this city policy um, that they didn't have to require everybody at all time to, to place children with same-sex couples. There was an exception in place. Right. They didn't use that exception. And so the court said, well, look, this isn't a universally applicable rule, which is required by the Smith. So for exactly. that reason, for that reason, Smith didn't apply. And, and there's kind of this general principle of adjudicating cases that um, like water goes the path of least resistance. The course court is supposed to take like the simplest way out that it can. Is that right? Fair. Hey, that, that's uh, well put. A great summary. Uh, exactly. I think the holding turned on that exception, and that's the reason the court did not uh, take up the Smith decision. And so I think they exercised, um, uh, in fact, uh, uh, a wise judicial restraint in this case. Now, we want them to go there, and in fact. You know, in the concurring opinions, you'll find that the, the justices do that. Yeah. Uh, they, they give us a glimmer of hope. Uh, Chris, I'll have to admit I'm befuddled at the fact that they didn't do that in Arnell's Flowers, uh, the yeah. Brunel Stetsman case. Yeah. I, I kind of had a lot of eggs in that basket and thought they would do that. Sure. Uh, but I think, and I, you know, I can't be a prognosticator here, but I think it's possible the court yeah. could go there in the uh, Diocese of Albany case okay. that uh, is forthcoming. With the tell, tell us, just so we, so, so we can watch for it in the news when it comes up, what's the brief synopsis? What's going on in that case? Yeah, well, in that case, I mean, basically, you're, you're dealing with uh, a group of nuns again. It's always sad for me to see, and I, I, I can't understand it really, but a group of nuns, the Diocese of Albany in New York, that basically the issue is whether or not they should be forced to employ, uh, forced to uh, provide uh, uh, abortifacients uh, yeah. for uh, insurance for, yeah. uh, for employers. And uh, so this is a context we've kind of seen before the court wrestle with. Um, and so my hope is that that may take the court to the uh, to dealing with Smith. So so that's maybe where we're going in the future is um, back to pre Smith, which is essentially what we have in the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. It's what we now have in the books in South Dakota now that Senate Bill 124 is is. Uh, effective as of July 1st, right. but 
but not every state has this and it's it's a bit tenuous david i know you wanted to return um you wanted to return to this a couple of things that just really jumped out at you in this fulton decision that the court was looking at. And I want to just say now that we're having a great conversation. If you're just jumping in on the radio, it's Chris Motes here with David Trimble. David's the vice president for public policy at the Religious Freedom Institute and director of their center for uh, religious freedom education. We're having a great conversation about Fulton v. Philadelphia, one of the the, the biggest cases of this last term for the Supreme Court. Next, we're going to be talking about some of the religious freedom implications of the current infrastructure bill before Congress. And I want to say just right now that we're going to go over time. So if you're listening to this on the radio, I want you to pull up your podcast app and search for South Dakota Catholic Conference, Faith and Politics, and you're going to catch the rest of the program on the podcast app. But uh, David, let's go back to Fulton because this is important. What did you, you notice there that the court was paying attention to? Yeah, well, you know, a couple of things in particular, and I've alluded to these, but, you know, if you pay special attention to the reasoning of the court and decision, what I see is a couple of very positive things. I, I see that the decision shows deference to the historical integrity of the church's mission. And so I think the track record there, I think the fact that the Catholic church has has paid attention to the needs of children for 200 years. You know, that resonated with the court. Uh, You know, Catholic Social Services in Philadelphia for over 50 years, you know, performing this service out of love, a mission uh, to the community. So I think that is an encouragement for us to stay true to our mission uh, and the church. Second, I would say the decision does show deference to a sincerely held religious belief, a core tenancy of the church, a core tenet of the church in marriage as a sacred bond between man and woman. Mm. And I'd want to, Chris, I'd want to drive home uh, here that the church, individuals in the church, in, in terms of our beliefs to the truth, the spiritual truth that we find in the church and the word of God, to stay true Yes. To the tenets of our faith, despite the fact that the winds of culture might be blowing a different direction. At the end of the day, the court specifically cited and used uh, the exact language several times, marriage as a sacred bond between a man and a woman. At the end of the day, the court honored that because Catholic social services adhered to it. Well, it's so encouraging because, you know, even for people who are really firm in the faith, it can be, I mean, it requires a lot of co- uh, courage to kind of go against the grain. And so, yeah, we can, it's easy to say like, well, um, you know, you just, just kind of stick to your principles when, when everybody's going against you. So it's so encouraging to see that in this decision, okay, they stuck to their principles and the Supreme Court had their back uh, to yeah. a certain extent because that's what the law, you know, that's what the law says. Yeah. Um, yeah, that we've got. That's right, and I, you know, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to look through uh, rose-colored glasses, but I do want to emphasize the importance of staying true to the tenets of our faith. Yes, Amen. Okay, anything else on Fulton? Should we move on to infrastructure? Well, I think for the sake of time, we probably move on. <laughs> Let's do it. What's so? What's going on with the infrastructure bill right now? People may have seen, you know, headlines. It's there's this big bill. I don't know, one point three trillion dollars, something like that, working its way through the Senate. What are the concerns uh, that that you're seeing in that, David? 
Yeah, and, th and thanks, uh, Chris, for your willingness to talk about this. The, you know, the Fulton case, the issues turning there are not unrelated to this concern, but let me move immediately to what I've seen. You can't turn on your radio, your TV without uh, your phone just getting alerts every day that the infrastructure bill is moving quickly and has been negotiated for months. And you have a bipartisan group of senators that are on the on the, uh, you know, at 1159 about ready to pass this bill. When the text came out on Sunday and let me affirm the text has only been out uh, for a week. Um, it became uh, it came to our attention very quickly, quickly that there was a very small half a page section inserted in the bill. Twenty seven hundred plus pages of bill text, half a page that specifically deals with sexual orientation and gender identity, non-discrimination provisions. And so within the bill. There is another bill. In fact, the infrastructure bill is really a two or three bills placed inside this larger text that we're calling the infrastructure bill. The Digital Equity Act was introduced in the Senate on June 10th. That is the section of this bill that contains the sexual orientation and gender identity language. Uh, here's, here's basically what it does. It includes sexual orientation and gender identity as protected classes in the non-discrimination provisions and the enforcements, the enforcement mechanisms within that bill and the basis for judicial review tie those two additional protected classes to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. This is disconcerting to me. The general public is not aware that that language is in the bill. This language got into the bill um, in a very stealthy manner. Uh, the bill, as I said, has only been, uh, Bill Text has only been released uh, for a week. That section of the bill, known as the Digital Equity Act, only had three sponsors in the Senate. The author of the bill, Senator Patty Murray, and then the co-sponsors, Senator Portman, Senator King. So here we have a bill that was sent to committee never had any committee action. There was never a hearing, never action taken in committee. So you have three sponsors inserting bill text into the infrastructure bill that stands to become the law of the land without general public awareness and with no congressional committee action whatsoever. I question the legitimacy of that legislative process. And, uh, for many reasons, but we'll stop there. Yeah, so the, I mean, the process is one thing that I think can often be a bit transparent or, you know, it's it's a bit like the man behind the curtain. If you're not paying attention, if it, and if this isn't your trade, but to just um, maybe highlight how significant this is, that this, as, as you've just described, this troubling language has never gotten a committee hearing, that we're talking about a modification to the Civil Rights Act, adding protected classes uh, if I understand that right. right. Yeah, it doesn't, the, the language itself doesn't actually modify the uh, Civil Rights Act as the Equality Act would do. I see. And so what's happened, Chris, is that the Senate has been unsuccessful. Progressives within the Senate have been unsuccessful at passing the Equality Act. This is a stealthy maneuver um. that will, in effect, accomplish some of the same goals of the Equality Act. 
doesn't abolish the protections of RIFRA, doesn't deal with public accommodation, but it does take us so far, it takes the Senate so far, the progressives within the Senate so far, of establishing that uh, sexual orientation and gender identity would be protected classes like they would be in the Civil Rights Act. Yeah. But the direct concrete tie to the Civil Rights Act is that the enforcement provisions or judicial review provisions in the infrastructure bill are linked directly to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. I see. So, I see. so how would this work out? I think that's your question. Yeah. So uh, the purpose of the language, it's, it's really good. I mean, it's, it's, you know, to provide for the expansion of broad internet services into rural areas, something yeah. we would naturally uh, want to encourage. Sure. But you have in those rural, area, rural areas, you have rural faith-based colleges and universities. You have rural um, small businesses. You have rural hospitals, faith-based hospitals and medical clinics. And the issue is this, that unless those institutions and those working within them are willing to violate their conscience, yeah. they may not participate in the funding under these provisions of the bill. Yeah. So the, the funding becomes conditioned on your compliance with the sexual orientation and gender identity non-discrimination provision. I see, I see. It's um, it certainly is troubling. What you know? What is what's your encouragement to people who are listening? And is there anything people could do about this? What's the what? What do we do? Are we kind of helpless here? Yeah, I, you know, I think this is an instance where we, you know, we we kind of have to draw a line in the sand and we say to our representatives in Congress. You know, we elect you to serve the public, your constituency. And for this type of language to be included in a bill without going through the standard legislative process over time is a misappropriation, I think, of authority and of legislative process. So I think there's sound reason everyone should reach out even if this passes as it is everyone should reach out and say what's going on here how does a bill pass in this manner and particularly these provisions chris none of us and i want to emphasize myself i'm first in line we do not support any semblance of persecution against any individual or group of individuals. This is an issue that should be worked out, seated at the table across from one another. Let's find resolutions. Let's find mechanisms to eliminate discrimination. But when you start embedding new protected classes into federal statute without going through regular legislative process, I think you're on very, very, very shaky ground. Yeah, and I, and I appreciate too, David, just offering that um, that exhortation to, uh, towards dignity and respect for all human beings. And yeah, of course, we do need to make sure that um, it's 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 appropriate that our laws reflect um, structures of justice for for everyone. That said, it's um, it, we still can be really concerned about the processes that are used and about this really troubling language that is being inserted into law. So it's, it's something that, uh, that we'll be following closely here. I know um, the, the Office of Government Relations at the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops 
too is following this issue issue closely. Um, so we'll we'll stay in touch on that one in, in the weeks ahead. That's great, uh, Chris. Let me highlight. Let me highlight. I think uh, an illustration that just brings to light uh, something of the level of of, uh, of uh, a misdirection here in uh, the language in the infrastructure bill that I'm referring to. Yeah. Um, I often work on uh, legislative. Uh, pieces, uh, sometimes in terms of uh, providing counsel on language, on modification, and particularly with regard to seeing a bill through the process and and, uh, to the president's desk. Yeah. Uh, Fairly recently, I worked on the uh, the Iraq and Syria Genocide Relief and Accountability Act that was signed into law in December of 2018. I was in the president's uh, Oval Office when it was signed and spent most every day of those two years working on it with other uh, Senate, with other uh, colleagues on the Hill. That bill was drafted in response to the horrific genocidal crimes and war crimes that were perpetrated by ISIS on ethnic and religious minorities in northern Iraq. Yazidis and Christians suffered, displaced, many enslaved. and many, many who died. And uh, that bill took every day of two years to move from its introduction to the House to the president's desk. And it, it was it was a response to genocide. Yes. In contrast to that, we have the Digital Equity Act introduced in June. The text available no earlier than Sunday in the infrastructure bill. We have three sponsors. Yeah. Am I to think that the weightiness of that bill and the weightiness of the sexual orientation and gender identity provisions within that bill are so weighty that they need to be rushed to the president's desk within the infrastructure bill? What What is the rush? Is this just... I mean, does it come down to sort of an exercise in raw power or what's the dynamic there? Yeah, I I think it is, uh, to be honest uh, with you. I think there are those who for whom this particular part of the bill is a very strong agenda. Sure. And it was a calculated uh, effort within 2,700 pages to embed this text within the bill to accomplish uh, their objectives through legislation. And the truth is, once that type of language is embedded in federal statute, it will be proliferated from that point forward into other laws. States will begin to view that as standardized language. And so it will also have an impact upon state law. So I simply say the brakes need to be put on. And, uh, you know, if this uh, type of language is to move forward, it needs to move forward through the regular legislative process. Well, um, thanks so much for sharing that, David. And and to giving it just the context with um, with this previous experience with genocide in Iraq and Syria, it's certainly, especially for those of us that aren't kind of on the hill and aware with how these processes work, the ins and outs every day, it's it's sobering to see that contrast. Um, and it kind of highlights the importance too for us to actually, you know, to, to pay attention and um, and to reach out to our to our DC delegation and let them know how we feel. 
Um, so uh, absolutely, I'd encourage that. Um, Chris, thanks for letting me uh, be with you for hitting a few of the high points. I jumped across great chasms of thought, but uh, I hope the audience will bear with me on that. And uh, I appreciate this opportunity uh, more than I could say. Well, David Trimble, thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you very much. Take care thank you, dear listeners, as always, for tuning in. We love listener feedback. You can go to sdcatholicconference.org, click contact us, drop us a note. Tell us what you like, what you didn't like, what you want to hear about next. Uh, and as always, we love new listeners. Don't hesitate to share with a friend or drop us a review on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, live well. Live well.